Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Hi, this is Jeremy Panganiban, PhD student in Peace Studies and Anthropology. Today, our special guest is Dr. Julia Kowalski, a cultural anthropologist and assistant professor of global affairs at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. She is a faculty fellow of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies and the author of the book, Counseling Women, Kinship Against Violence, which will be the topic of our conversation today. Welcome to the Kellogg Podcast, Dr. Julia. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess I jump right in. Um, So your book engages the work of family counselors in Jaipur, northern India, to show us the readers about the complexities of frontline work. Tell us more how you arrived at this project. What was the inspiration for this type of work? I mean, so briefly, you know, when we're talking about family counselors in this context, these are workers who are sort of similar to what we might call social workers in the United States who are working at women's rights organizations that are run by NGOs that are kind of pursuing a bunch of different avenues for supporting vulnerable women in Jaipur, which is a a city in Rajasthan, which is a state in North India that has a strong reputation for gender inequality and very high rates of gender-based violence. And so part of how I came to study the family counselors is that I was actually initially interested when I was designing my dissertation in understanding how people in a rapidly transforming economic and social environment in India were thinking about family. So there's a long tradition in North India of framing the multi-generational patrilocal family. So this is like families where adult sons live with their parents and their adult Mm -hmm. brothers, wives marry in, daughters marry out. And if you talk to people in places like Jaipur, they will tell you that this is a sort of ideal family form, especially for, for Hindu families. And at the same time, they will tell you that it is a family form that's dying out. And that's something that people have been saying since about 1925. It's a really, really old discourse in India. It's not quite accurate, but there is this sort of sense of of family in crisis. And so that's what I was really interested in studying in graduate school is how people were using family to make sense of social change. And what I very quickly found when I was in the field is that one of the major ways that folks were processing this was by thinking about changing gender roles and in particular gender-based violence. And so that led me to these women's rights organizations and to these family counseling practices. Yeah, you you talk about counseling practices and family counseling practices. Can you describe a little bit more how that looks like in this context? And also maybe you can also add now what the Indian legal system looks like and how it deals with this particular issue. Yeah, it might be helpful actually to start a little bit with the legal context because the kind of broader legal context for dealing with family law and laws that address gender-based violence or gender-based exclusions in India um, is sort of famously overburdened, overwhelmed, and not particularly well implemented. And so one of the reasons why these kinds of counseling centers exist in the first place is to help women and their families find their way through a kind of thicket of confusing and often not super effective or reliable legal interventions. So we could have a whole podcast just Mm -hmm. talking about the sort of legal history of dealing with wives and women in India, in part because India's kind of colonial history means that 
issues of social reform related to the treatment of women have been really high stakes, going all the way back to anti-colonial nationalism before 1947. But in the current day, women sort of have two options if they're facing violence in their household. One is through the criminal justice system, which is tricky in India for a number of reasons, including that the courts are very slow and overburdened, and also including that many, many women are financially dependent on their husband's families. And so lodging a criminal case that's going to get your in-laws arrested is going to leave you homeless. Like there's, there's real dilemmas there. And that's often not actually what women want. They often want the family to be restored, not to be criminalized or penalized. And so in response to that, in 2005, a number of different feminist groups were able to lobby the government to pass a civil law called the Protection of Women Against Domestic Violence Act. And that was meant to provide civil rather than criminal protections to women facing violence. And the important distinction there is that the emphasis is on the kind of plaintiff's right to protection and support rather than on penalizing aggressors. And I will also add, because I think oftentimes people assume that places like India are, quote unquote, behind the United States, but this law has a really broad and really progressive definition of what counts as violence. It includes emotional violence, forms of economic or financial violence, like refusing to give your wife money to go to the market to buy food for the kids. It was a really broad, broad understanding of violence and a really broad understanding of how to kind of ameliorate it. The problem is that implementation has been really difficult and like high courts have continually kind of set precedent that limit the scope of the law. So that's the legal context. By and large, women who are seeking help with family problems do not want to engage with the state because they don't trust, with good reason, that it's going to be a pathway. And so as a result of this, you have a lot of practices like family counseling that have cropped up that are actually meant to help women triage and make decisions about where to go next when they're dealing with household conflict. And so what that looked like at the counseling centers that I was working at is that women would come, they typically come with family members that might be their natal family members, like their moms or sisters. It might be their sisters-in-law by marriage. They might actually come with their husbands if they're having problems with like their mothers-in-law. And often counseling just started with a very simple question of, you know, what do you want? And that's often quite difficult for women to answer. And in that process, counselors would try to help women decide, okay, like, is this an issue where we really do need to, we need to go to the police? Like, somebody in your family is hurting you and might really, really hurt you. Or is this an issue where a civil case might be better to pursue? Or is this something that we can maybe address through counseling as a longer term process where we speak to multiple family members over a set of iterative sessions over ideally like weeks or even months to try to come at some kind of transformed household status? And those are the sessions that I was observing during fieldwork. Yeah. Can you give us a little, how the longest case that you've encountered while you were observing or during the course of your field work? Yeah, I mean, I'd say most of the cases that I that I observed sort of ended after a few sessions, either because they were quote-unquote settled, which is the language of the centers themselves. If any counselor I've ever talked to acknowledges that, like, those settlements are very contingent and precarious mm. and open to falling apart. There were a few kind of longer term ones that had been stretching on for like well over a year. And that usually had to do with family members not following through on kind of material commitments they had made or the woman in question kind of feeling so vulnerable that she was constantly kind of changing what she was asking for. And also, I think sometimes 
you get the sense that the counseling center, it's like a social resource, right? It's a place to go mm-hmm. and vent and complain about how frustrated you are with your husband and his stupid family, mm-hmm. <laughs> which very much seemed to be the case for several of those women. And that was also frustrating to counselors and their bosses as well, who really wanted to see these cases move forward, but also uh-huh. felt like they were in a position where they couldn't tell women what to do. They could only like elicit their desires and options. And so if you're dealing with somebody who isn't sure what those are, you can go around and around and around many times. Right. I can imagine it takes uh, like time and effort and energy yeah. from all sorts of people and resources. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned the word triage, and I was imagining like, you know, a nursing triage where yeah. you go in with a problem and then they tell you what it might be and then you go for exam. So, But the, uh, the way you describe it, the counseling centers and the counseling work seems more holistic and more elicitive and really trying to work with not just the couples, for example, but the entire yeah. network of family relationships yeah. that is involved in these cases. Hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, but then I think, uh, thank you for describing that for us, but I really, really appreciate the argument <laughs> that you are <laughs> making in this book and provocative in the sense that not just because it's uh, International Women's Month today, and I guess a lot of people are commemorating it, yeah. and gender-based violence is in front of people's Mm -hmm. minds during this time of the year. But also globally, there's the dominant discourse, as you've carefully laid out in your book, about how women's human rights advocacy and how the activists try to carry out this type of work by placing domestic violence or intimate partner violence or gender-based violence in the family as something of a problem of the family structure Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And your provocation is, wait a minute, here in counseling centers in northern India, family is the solution. And I think that's a really interesting point and highly Mm -hmm. relevant. Can you tell us a bit more? Can you walk us through how you arrive at this argument and particularly the distinctions, if any, that you've seen or making about kinship, relatedness, and what possibilities this generate? Sure, sure. Well, so there's there's kind of two pathways that led me to that core argument of the book. You know, the subtitle of the book is Kinship Against Violence, mm-hmm. which is a bit of an inversion of how mainstream and especially Western kind of women's rights discourse frames gender-based violence, which, as you said so well, is as a problem of patriarchal family structures. And the family structures in North India are resolutely patriarchal. Like, we don't want to be naive about that. But so there are sort of two paths that that kind of led me to this. One is theoretical and one is empirical. And the empirical one just came out of my field site, which was that it became really clear to me very early on in fieldwork that the kind of default framework that I had for thinking about the problem of intimate violence or gender-based violence that I'd sort of absorbed in the United States through gender studies coursework, but also, you know, like health classes as a teenager in school and and everything else is that gender-based violence is a problem of like husbands or male partners harming female partners. It's primarily a kind of issue of that couple unit and that uh, separation is the only solution. And, you know, that seems to be the case and hold, at least in the United States. But one of the things that I was seeing right away in India is that, first of all, violence wasn't a problem primarily of conjugal units necessarily. I mean, often it was. But it was sometimes a problem of like these larger family units, like these multi-generational joint families where you might have a father-in-law or a mother-in-law who's really the vector of violence or like in multiple cases, older sisters-in-law by marriage. So like the wives of the older brothers who are kind of 
disciplining or bullying or torturing younger wives in the family or brothers-in-law themselves might be either abusive or kind of like creepy and skeevy. And so it was hard to kind of translate a lot of that couple-based approach to these multi-generational contexts. At the same time, while a lot of women's rights activists in India sort of see the joint family as a kind of oppressive structure, the counselors that I knew were more middle class and had a lot in common with their clients, as well as the clients themselves, like, they really desired these joint families. I think in the same way that people who go to couples counseling in the United States, they desire a good marriage, right? They're not there to like take apart the marriage or the concept of like heteronormative <laughs> marriage. They're, they're there to because it's a site of desire and belonging for them and they want to make it work. And so as an anthropologist, my job is to try to make sense of that. And one of the toolkits that I have to make sense of that is how anthropologists today think about something called kinship. So there's a long history in social thought and the social sciences going back to enlightenment philosophy, which we won't go all the way there today. <laughs> I've written about this in my book and also in some articles. But there's a really long history that continues to shape a lot of our default assumptions today in the global north, which is that as societies develop over time, so first of all, we have this idea that societies all develop in this kind of patterned way over time, which is not accurate, but it's a very powerful idea. And that as they develop over time, people shift from having their social identities primarily defined by kinship relations to being defined as individuals who are able to engage as like rational actors in a market or in like legal contracts, right? And so the kind of old-fashioned label for this is a, is a transition from status to contract-based societies, if you're following along with your Victorian social theorists. <laughs> but this idea really sticks with us today, such that there is a tendency, not just for looking at gender-based violence, but for thinking about things like political corruption or questions of freedom and autonomy in education or broader political structures, I guess we could also say, to see the presence of kinship as a sign that something is backwards, that people are not fully developed yet. And I think this has had a big impact on how we talk about women's rights globally, where that makes it very easy to see kinship as the problem. But the problem, the issue with that is that as an anthropologist, you know, I'm here to tell you, and you, you obviously know this too, that kinship in the sense of the role of our relationships with others and ha the kind of shared social framework we have for interpreting and making sense of those relationships with others. I mean, that shapes, that shapes life all the time. It's totally interwoven with modern experience as well. Before we got on the microphone today, we we're talking about the university's policies about parental leave. Like, this is something that's, that's always with us. And so that fiction that there are some societies that are like more kinshipy than others can really have a lot of impacts on how we kind of interpret the role of kinship in contemporary life. So this is a very long-winded way of saying that part of my goal in thinking about the way that kinship might actually be used as a resource to push back against violence is trying to move beyond the idea that you have this kind of static structure called kinship and you've got to pull women out of it so that they can be safe and liberated to instead realizing that, that what we're calling kinship or family is incredibly multifaceted. It's got a lot of different moving parts. It's not just these static rules. And then it's also, you know, People are embedded in specific families that change over time. You know, the powerless daughter-in-law or, or Bahu, as she's called in Hindi, 
you know, someday she will be a bossy or hopefully supportive mother-in-law herself, you know, if all goes well. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at the role that kinship and and relations are playing in social life. And, and we don't want to assume that it's all negative or all positive, which also would be inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I think you really laid out a nice picture of us of this ambivalent situations that women in these situations, but really all of us encounter and have to grapple with as we try to be in relation with others. But then in the chapters of your book, you describe so well the processes involved, like, you know, the actual face-to-face mm-hmm. encounters, how that unfolds, yeah. what that entails. Mm-hmm. There you go. And But it looks like, like, you know, in the actual day-to-day life in the counseling center, right. but also the interactions that constitute what we can call counseling. And you offer the terms careful speech to characterize what the counselors do and then oppose it with labeling violence that perhaps what activists or in most cases, that's what women's rights activists do in order Mm -hmm. to push forward the goals for gender equality. So can you, for our audience, listeners, can you just walk us through those ideas? But also you introduce us to this term of language ideologies and how that might operate or what is the role of that in resolving and understanding and trying to find a way forward in this issue that we're talking about of gender-based violence in families. Sure. So, I mean, I think to kind of build on, on what we were just talking about, about kind of expanding and nuancing the roles that we see for kinship in contemporary life, one place that that really emerged for me in the data was listening very carefully, not only to what the content of what was being said in these counseling sessions by counselors and by their clients, but also to how counselors understood the role of speech in addressing violence. And that's where this concept of language ideologies is really powerful. So language ideologies is not, it's not my term. It's an analytic category that comes to us from the subfield of linguistic anthropology. And again, we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about that, but we won't. But very superficially, the concept of language ideologies is a tool that anthropologists and sociolinguists use to connect what people are doing in interactions with each other and talking to each other with a wider framework of shared interpretations of what language does in the world. And everybody has language ideologies. You can't function as a person speaking to other people if you if you haven't got them, but they tend to kind of operate in the background. They're really hard to elicit. And in particular, I think elite Anglophone language ideologies make them especially hard to see and and pull out. And so part of what I found in listening and observing these counseling sessions and sort of counterposing what I was seeing to how those sessions were described by other scholars or people who were doing monitoring and evaluation for different government schemes, as well as to what a lot of international women's rights activists kind of insist GBV interventions should look like, is that... I think there's often a focus on the content of what is being said when when people are doing these kinds of cross-cultural comparisons of interventions. And so people get very distressed when practitioners like counselors don't really talk about violence as violence. Seem to be telling women to go back to households where they're being harmed in some way or being left vulnerable. All of these are like violations of, of what we expect to be happening and what we think should be happening. 
to address gender-based violence. And there's often an assumption that that reflects that counselors either don't understand the definition of gender-based violence or they don't really think it's a problem. And so then the solution is like more training sessions, sensitize the counselors, getting to know counselors well. In fact, they did think these issues were enormous problems and they did really think that intervention was warranted. So it wasn't that they didn't share the definition of violence with women's rights activists, and it wasn't that they weren't problematizing it. It wasn't that they were like, this is fine. The difference is how they thought speech should act on violence. And so that's what the category language ideologies helps us analyze. Really briefly, I hope people will read the book because this unfolds over multiple chapters with lots of great ethnographic data that's kind of hard to summarize in a podcast. But, you know, a lot of kind of international women's rights activism, not to mention legal frameworks, which have to depend on this language ideology because it's just how the law works, are really fixated on the act of labeling violence as a kind of first step in any intervention, right? And, and you know, if you have ever read anything, perhaps in celebration of International Women's Day, you saw some things on Twitter, as I did, this ideology of labeling violence is everywhere because the idea is that once women kind of learn to see a set of experiences as violence, it helps denormalize it and then it, it encourages them to work towards change or to seek help. And that sounds great to me. That is very much the ideology that I was raised with here. But it's not the only way to think about how speech and spoken interaction can act on violence. And so counselors were actually a little bit wary of labeling violence. And that's because they were much less interested in diagnosing violence in the past than they were in helping sustain a kind of supportive family environment for women in the future. And they had a set of beliefs or ideologies about language that deploying labels could potentially foreclose future possibilities, right? So my favorite example of this is that one of the counselors I knew really well, this is before WhatsApp was really widespread in India. I feel like it would be on WhatsApp today, but it was a text message chain at the time. And she shared this like text that someone had sent her. And it said something like, words are under your control until you speak them. But once you speak them, you're under their control. And I think this really illustrates well some of the language ideologies behind a, a strategy of careful speech, where rather than acting on harm or conflict or violence by labeling it and categorizing it. Instead, you deploy speech to perform and point to your commitment to sustaining valued relations into the future. And so I use this label careful because it comes from a couple of different things that people were saying in Hindi. So like there was often a lot of discussion, both from counselors and clients and family members about explaining or causing people to understand with affection. So Piyar Se Samjana. And that that was a sort of key goal of like counseling itself was a form of Samjana of explaining ideally with affection or with love. And that that's also something that family members ideally would do with each other recipro reciprocally. And so there's kind of this idea that if you could train people to speak with care, to speak with love, that that would actually like bring about the kind of supportive relations that it seemed to initially index. And so this is a very different understanding of how language acts on the world and acts on relationships than the labeling violence approach. And I don't want to say that it's better. Certainly, if you want a court case, labeling violence is like what you need to do. You need evidence. This is how legal systems work. But it's a mistake to think that because people aren't engaging in that interactive practice, that they aren't committed to the kind of broader political project. And so that's, again, what this language ideologies concept helps us do is move beyond just paying attention to 
what is the content of what's being said and instead ask ourselves like what do people think they're doing with language in this context what are they what do they think their interaction is accomplishing and is it the same like does everybody in this in this institutional space have that same vision or how do these different kind of ideologies about language and language use come into conflict with each other Right, really, really interesting. And as you were saying this, I'm reflecting on also my encounters in the Philippines in my years, previous years, before mm-hmm. I joined graduate school, of working in, a, not too dissimilar from yeah. what you characterize as a largely a women's rights motivated organization, trying to help out legally, provide advice on legal options for women. And there's just always a concern about labeling violence, but mm-hmm. also the harm that it does to women primarily yeah. and all their, their relations. So the idea of the careful speech is we suspend that desire to label right. in the hopes of opening up potential other futures. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's really powerful, and that yeah. is practical as well, deeply practical and deeply intuitive in certain situations I can already think mm-hmm. of. But then you also bring up this idea of interdependence mm-hmm. and the way we deal with, with others, but also how we understand ourselves as we move throughout the world. You yeah. mentioned earlier that, you know, sometimes women who go in the counseling centers, they are not sure about what they want or how do they want to go about mm-hmm. this. So it's sorting out messy relationships. Right. <laughs> but then the world we live in requires us to be in relation with each other. It's inevitable. It's the fact of life that we live in an interdependent world. So I think the book and your work really invites us to answer this question. How do we be an interdependent, but also in just and equitable way? It's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm glad there are suggestions for ways forward that we can learn from the counselors in northern Mm -hmm. India, but also in thinking through gender-based violence as a phenomenon that is with us and we have to dwell with it. But do you see interdependence is, in my idea, does not only happen in the context of kinship or in the context of families. Absolutely not. And so I was thinking, okay, what if we extend this idea of the politics of interdependence Mm -hmm. into other realms of uh, social life? And what could that look like? Yeah, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th- so I totally agree. I think that it's easy to see this in domains that are linked to the private sphere because that's the one place where in the co- kind of contemporary, you know, I don't know again, what we could call it, late liberal capitalist world where we're pretty much only comfortable with relations of dependency in the private sphere in like very specific contexts. And even then we get twitchy, right? I mean, if you read parenting advice in the United States, there's so much angst about like, you don't want your kid to be too dependent on you, but like, so they are dependent, you know. So I think the way to kind of expand how we think about this beyond the private sphere to the public sphere, and, I, and I'm building on a, the shoulders of many, you know, extraordinary thinkers in different fields of feminist scholarship here, is to start to kind of let go of a very powerful idea, I think, certainly in the United States, and I would say maybe globally among kind of elite cosmopolitan folks, and especially decision makers and unfortunately policymakers, which is that independence is the solution for everything. And that dependency is always a problem to be solved, unless we're talking maybe about very small children who are dependent on parents or very old people. That's another space where we get very nervous. 
but that independence is always is always always the solution. And I think we've really seen in the past three years that that's a really violent political vision of the world for precisely the reason you said, which is that interdependence is a constitutive feature of human social existence. We wouldn't be here in such large numbers with like cool podcasting microphones and all the other amazing things we have as a species if we weren't really social and if we weren't really good at being sort of entwined in each other's lives. And so having that run up against a sort of social and political set of ideologies that insists that independence is the mark of adult development and an individual scale social development, it creates a lot of problems. And I think that the way that often shakes out, and I mean, again, you see this in like mainstream women's rights conversations, is that the question is almost always feels in these like liberal feminist spaces of a question of like, how do we get vulnerable women or oppressed people from being dependent on others to being independent? And the independence is like a mark of success and liberation. And that comes out of a very specific political and economic history for women's rights. And that was important. But I think that there are other kinds of questions that we could ask. And those questions are not about saying a binary of dependency, which is bad, and independence, which is good, but instead starting to ask, well, are you able to sustain the interdependent relations that are meaningful to you and your social community on the terms that matter to you and that give those relations meaning over time? And that's a very different kind of question, and it opens a very different set of politics up, right? Because then you no longer have to say, like, maintain a fiction of independence in a context where you're also still dealing with, like, really demanding ties of interdependency, whether that's at home or, like, even if we think about some of the kind of debates about pedagogy and higher education. I mean, these are actually debates about the ways in which our, we depend on our students and they depend on us. But we don't really have a great toolkit for asking questions about interdependence. And so I think that's one way to kind of expand this is to try to move beyond, you know, how do we make everybody into an inter- into an independent actor to instead saying, like, are we creating and nurturing the kinds of resources and relations necessary such that people can, like, live out their interdependent relations and sustain them in the way that matters to them? I think in the book and in other places that What I say is it's about moving from asking, hey, are you independent yet, to saying, are you able to depend on others in the way that feels right and meaningful to you? Like, is this good or bad dependency? And that's a really big shift. And it would actually really change how we think about framing and evaluating policy. It would really change how we think about how we conceptualize things like rights. And it would give us a better language to talk about, like, all sorts of issues ranging from how and why should childcare be funded to... How do we think about what it means to live in community with people with whom we profoundly politically disagree, as many of us perhaps in Indiana do? But it's a different sort of set of questions. Yeah, and and thank you for giving us the opportunity to think and really to dwell on this question. I think it's important for all of us to have the time to ask this as we move through the world. As a closing, can you tell us what's next for you in terms of this work or the other things that you're doing? Yeah, yeah, I think it's always exciting to finish a big project. I have kind of two directions I'm moving in for the future. So one is still based in India, and it's kind of building off of some of the insights about counseling that came out of this project is this kind of amazingly sophisticated interactive toolkit. And so I've been looking into the history of counseling, and that has led me down a really interesting path. 
because counseling, it turns out, dates back to a bunch of other kinds of interactive strategies, all of which were developed and deployed in the era right after independence in India in 1947, to think about how to socialize people into democratic subjectivity. So I'm working on a kind of historical and hopefully eventually also will involve contemporary ethnographic fieldwork project looking at the histories of social work, community development, and something called Gandhian constructivist activism in the post-independence era in India and looking at how all these different folks were thinking about, like, how do you talk people into democracy? <laughs> really, really interesting stuff. So that's one strand. And then the other direction I'm going is actually a product of some of what I've been able to observe as a professor of global affairs at the Keough School of Global Affairs, which has me like has my nose right up against big debates in contemporary global policymaking that I find really ethnographically interesting as an anthropologist. And so I'm hoping to start developing a project looking at how in the wake of the pandemic, a number of different transnational organizations, including Oxfam, have gotten really interested in the concept of care and care work and have sought to find ways to kind of metricize and develop indicators for finding ways to incorporate the sort of demands and wages of care work into larger economistic models for evaluating policy implementation. And that's really hard to do for a bunch of different reasons, including the fact that typically care is seen as this like unremunerated and uncountable thing. And so I'm really hoping in the next few years to be able to get in with some of those organizations to observe what does that look like? How are people putting that into practice? Why now? What's at stake for these organizations? Well, once again, congratulations, Dr. Julia Kowalski, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage. <laughs>